Welcome back to the Good News Podcast. My name is Ayebele, and I'm a pastor at St. Paul's Free Methodist Church in Greenville, Illinois. I'm currently going through the ordination process, and one of the great gifts that the church has given me uh, is the opportunity to be a part of their rotating pulpit. The message that you're about to hear has been pre-recorded, but whether you heard it live uh, or long after it's been uploaded, I believe that the Holy Spirit is present. I hope you enjoy, and I look forward to hearing your thoughts and feedback uh, and comments. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. Once more, Jesus spoke to the people in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding banquet, but they would not come. Again, he sent the other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Look, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the banquet. But they made light of it and went away, one to his farm and another to his business, while the rest seized seized his slaves, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged, and he sent his troops, destroyed the murderers, and burned their city. And then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, into the main streets and invite everyone you find to the wedding banquet. And those slaves went out into the streets and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. And so the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man who was not wearing a wedding robe. And he said to him, friend... How did you get here without wearing, uh, how did you get here without a wedding robe? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but a few are chosen. This is the gospel of our Lord. Please be seated. I remember the year was uh, 2018, and I was in JKL. For those of you who don't know uh, what JKL is, it is is the uh, religion department, the building um, that Pastor Ben and Pastor Bob uh, and Pastor Sam, who will be spending a lot of time there, as well as our students who study ministry or theology, biblical studies. I'm not sure. It seems to change. It seems to change every four years. So the year is 2018, and I'm with a good friend of mine, Cooper Aker, who is now uh, a pastor at Hillsborough Presbyterian Church. And at the time, we were reading this book right here, The Cross and the Lynching Tree by James Cone. It's a compelling book on the violence of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in parallel to that of the, uh, the, the modern nooses of black Americans. From the strange fruit that was hanging on the poplar trees with blood on the leaves to the crucifixion of God's saints, which often sound like gunshots or a gasping of a throat under an officer's knee. In the opening chapter, James Cone calls to memory the story, an uncomfortable story to tell, one that we are living into to this day. It's both the history and the present reality of America. And so I will read from this book. James Cone says that the claim that whites had the right to control the black population through lynching and other extra-legal forms of mob violence was grounded in the religious belief that America is a white nation called by God to bear witness to the superiority of white over black. James Cone effectively labels racism in the American context as a religious practice. And if we're being honest with ourselves, as a Christian practice, 
as he recalls the history of the church. Now, if this recent history of the church and this nation make us really uncomfortable, then whatever discomfort one might feel on this fine Sunday morning as we address such a topic may come from the desire to forget what once was and how the story developed and how the story is still developing. The desire to not address the things that are still taking place to this day. I recognize it is somewhat peacetime as we haven't had a recent, uh, at least within America, a recent event that sort of catches fire on social media. Yet whatever discomfort one might feel may also come from a difficulty to recognize that my personal reality is not necessarily the reality of the people that I hang out with. It's not the reality of the people that I see And it's not the reality of the people I subconsciously avoid. History has a funny way of repeating itself, especially when we do not allow ourselves to tell the full story. So let me take us back. The year is 2018, and Cooper and I are talking a little bit about this book by James Cone. And we discover a quote. I'm not sure exactly where. I don't even remember if it's in the book or if it was just online. But it is now written on all caps by the printer in JKL, and it's also written on my heart. James Cone said that any theology that is indifferent to the theme of liberation is not Christian theology. So for the sake of this message, anytime that you hear me say the word liberation, please know that I am talking about salvation. And anytime you hear me say salvation, please know that I am talking about liberation. And before we begin, I'll... I do want to confess, the lectionary has been dragging us for the last couple weeks. We haven't been getting easy texts. It doesn't allow me to only read the comfortable parts of the Bible. And so last week, we heard uh, Reverend Ruth Houston as she preached on what my grandmother-in-law calls the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments. Uh, and, And this week, we're forced to reconcile some pretty difficult concepts. Psalm 106 depicts a God whose steadfast love endures forever, one who is worthy of praise for the mighty acts, one who shows favor to his people. And Paul's letter to the uh, church in Philippi is an instruction to them to lean into the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. Whatever is excellent, whatever is true, whatever is pure and pleasing, whatever is commendable, whatever is just or worthy of praise, please think about these things, Paul says. Meanwhile, our gospel text and our Exodus text, they're a little bit, uh, they, they present God in a way that makes us a little bit less comfortable. What are we supposed to do with these texts that depict an angry God that is ready to destroy God's own people, the people that God created, the people that God has called, and the people that God claims to love, especially as each text begins with uh, a joyous occasion that then transforms into something pretty heavy. So as we dive deeper into Exodus 32, I think it's also important to name that oftentimes when we're talking about idolatry, when we're talking about this false worship or sin in general, we tend to begin with the individual first and then look at the communal later if we get to that point. So oftentimes it's, what can I do to not create a golden calf in my life? How can I make sure not to replicate the things that have happened in Exodus 32? And today I ask us to resist such urges. Instead, let us do the opposite and start first with the community 
and then recognize the individual within the community and how the individual has been shaped by the community. The Israelites find themselves at the foot of Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. And as Moses has now ascended the mountain to be with God, the pressure for Aaron to make these gods to form this golden calf does not come from an individual, but rather for the entire congregation of Israel. There doesn't seem to be an individual who speaks up and says, hey, that might, might not be a good idea. Remember what God told us before Moses uh, went up the mountain. The whole congregation seems to make this uh, request unanimously, and there is not a single dissenting voice within the text. Ironically, the law which is being given to Moses at that time uh, that the Israelites are making the, this request of Aaron, it was the thing that was supposed to keep them from putting further distance between themselves and between them and Yahweh. This is evident in their worship and in how they lived with one another, how they were supposed to uh, keep themselves pure. And so while in the wilderness, the people desperately need to feel God's reassurance and they desperately need to feel God's presence. Their desire for a golden calf is deeply embedded in their DNA. Draw near to the Lord. This is the path of liberation. It's the same reason that this community here gathers every week. We are perhaps looking to experience God's presence anew while on the journey of salvation, whether it's in person or online. And yet still, the blueprint for their idolatry is laid out far before they remove their golden earrings. Yahweh's name is not mentioned until Aaron brings it up. And as the people tell him, come make us gods. Who shall go before us as for this fellow Moses, the man that you have that that brought us out of the land of Egypt. We do not know what has become of him. He's been gone far too long. So anything could have happened. And they they seem to no longer recognize their liberator. They have prioritized Moses over Yahweh as their liberator. And so the, the request for a golden calf isn't even to replace Yahweh. It is to replace Moses. Their gold was meant, to be, uh, was meant to be built for uh, building the tabernacle, as expressed in Exodus 20, and they were not to create golden gods. And scholars can't seem to agree on whether Aaron was uh, allowing this as a way to worship new gods or if, this was, if the golden calf was a physical manifestation of Yahweh. Either way, their worship was perverted the moment that they thought that they could initiate God's presence through their own will. Their sin began as a false need was created in the perceived absence of God. Allow me to say that again. Their sin was created in the moment that they perceived an absence of God. And how close this is for us. For the people who do not hear God's voice audibly, who do not see pillars of fire and cloud, for people who don't feel the heat from a burning bush or, or the ruach in a, in a rushing wind, while in the wilderness, God's people will always seek God out. But God's presence is the thing that we long for while at the foot of the mountain and while God is on top of the mountain that we ourselves cannot climb. Our collective impatience means the only logical thing is to form a golden calf. We need something to worship, the one who brought us out of liberation right now. The Israelites lost sight of their purpose as their worship began to resemble that of Egypt and of surrounding nations. They wore new shackles made of Egyptian gold, 
as they forgot where they came from and who brought them out. And I know some Old Testament scholars' ears might twitch at the sound of this, but I'm not fully convinced that the golden calf is the only idol in Exodus 32. I think if we can shape a deity into whatever animal, whatever form we want, what does that then make us? If not a king of a king or a lord of lords or ultimately a god of gods. As Aaron does all the necessary procedures for this festival to be a festival to Yahweh, Ultimately, the people of Israel worship themselves, defining what is good and evil on their behalf without consulting Yahweh. And surely they did not die. Their eyes were only open to see just how much they could be like God if they take and seize for themselves what seems good. Their worship alleviated their anxieties and it served their deepest passions, consisting of deviations from what Yahweh had instructed them to do. So the false gods in Exodus 32 is not just the golden calf, but the people themselves, their resources, and even their perception of freedom became something that they were enslaved to. So who is it that is responsible for the Israelite salvation? This is the repeated question for them, and this is the repeated question for us. How quickly they forgot the law that was installed. And as Reverend Ruth brought to our attention last Sunday, Yahweh identifies himself as their liberator in Exodus 20. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and you shall have no other gods before me. In the remaining nine commandments, dare I say the 612 that follow, are a practical way of upholding this first one, whose function is to protect the individual and the community alike, from the destructive effects of idolatry and perverse worship. Protection from what happens when we become our own gods in the garden and in the wilderness. So to the people of St. Paul's Free Methodist Church on this 20th Sunday after Pentecost, who is your liberator? What is it that you are experiencing here? What have we created or that we have indulged in that we think saves us? making salvation a thing of our own control, the thing that grants us our comforts, gives us a purpose or a sense of accomplishment, where we derive our value from and where we get our direction from and to. Although this thing might be the silent killer of our relationships with each other and with God. The question of who is your liberator is not about whether or not you have created a false God, a false image to worship, Instead, it's a question of what does your idol look like as we have forgotten. As the desire to experience God anew is embedded in our DNA, when we don't feel God's presence, we too make golden calves. Money, power, influence, fame, all of these things aren't only, aren't they, they're not the only gods that our society has taught us to worship. They're not the only gods that our community worships. They're the golden calves that draw our attention away from the fact that we ourselves desire to be God, that we desire to initiate the salvation and to fulfill the liberation on our own terms and in our own time. The phony gods to which our worship is oriented far more frequently than we would like to admit. Because at the foot of the mountain, if I work hard enough at living the American dream, therein lies my purpose and my salvation. 
at the foot of the mountain, if, I can, if we can elect the right people to turn things around, then this is where we will find our liberation. At the foot of the mountain, if I can shine the light on the best parts of myself to my peers, I will somehow find freedom. And at the foot of the mountain, we must do X, Y, and Z to ensure that God's presence descends from the mountaintop in order to address our anxieties and our discomforts. The quest for proper worship becomes a dangerous one for our entire community and ourselves when we forget the recent history, when we forget the story or when we forget or when we neglect to tell the story in full. So the journey of salvation is littered with a bunch of cautionary tales. It's a bunch of cautionary tales of the ways in which we cannot initiate our own freedom. Instead, the path of liberation is always a response to what God has already been doing and what God continues to do. And yet we find it offensive to even entertain the fact that God might not need the selected people in order to carry out the plan of salvation and liberation, that God could choose someone else to start with as God shifts the attention from the rest of Israel to Moses. As God says, you will be the new Abraham who will fulfill, who through I will fulfill this covenant. And so I don't wish to gloss over the troubling reality that God uh, wishes to destroy the Israelites as they worship their golden creation. Nor do I want to give some sort of explanation as if there's one objective truth to come to. As the Israelites perceive God to be absent, they could not be further from the truth because while they're at the foot of the mountain, God is telling Moses at the top of the mountain what he sees his people doing, or what he sees Moses' people doing as he distances himself from them. God never abandoned them. They just did not have the eyes to see what God was doing. And so what would it look like for Yahweh's wrath to come upon these stiff-necked people? What would it look like for the wrath to consume them? Would it be like Sodom and Gomorrah? Or could it look like leaving them to the destruction that will be inevitably, inevitably produced by their false worship? The worship which tethers them to slavery, in which people are expendable commodities. The worship that tethers them to slavery, in which everyone is in charge of building their own empires, no matter the amount of lives that are trampled or discarded in order to build such empires. The falsified freedom of a white picketed fence, a caged life in which we do not even get to know our neighbors. Yahweh's covenant with Abraham was that his descendants would be a great nation. And because of these stiff-necked people, Yahweh wants to start anew. And while we're uncomfortable with the anthropomorphic depictions of God in Scripture, the ways in which God resembles a little too much to humans, you know, as though God woke up on the wrong side of the bed or Maybe just needs the morning coffee. Or in the words of the Snickers candy bar, you're not yourself when you're hungry. <laughs> but here is the good news for us this morning. That as Yahweh looks to reestablish the covenant that he made with Abraham through Moses, rather than accepting it, Moses stirs God's memory. Not that God had forgotten the covenant, but that God needed to fulfill it. That's what it looks like to remember the covenant. He says, Yahweh, these are not my people, but they are yours. You are the one who brought them out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So remember your, your covenant to Father Abe, in which you promised him that I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. 
And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Yahweh, what will the nations think if you turn your back on these stiff-necked people, your people, now of all times, after you have delivered them from slavery, are you going to kill them in the wilderness? How could Egypt or any other nation experience your blessing if you destroy your people out here in this wilderness? And on that mountaintop, what we see is that Moses holds Yahweh accountable to what Yahweh had promised. And in doing so, Moses engages in a dangerous act of worship. Anathea Portier-Young, an associate professor at, uh, of Old Testament at Duke, says this, The hard way forward reckons with a divine experience that continues to elude our senses even as it fills and animates them. The way forward knows the hard pain of absence and doubt, but still chooses to follow the cloud and fire through the desert landscape of freedom. And in the living link between us and our God is the one who challenges and negotiates with God for our forgiveness, for God's enduring presence among us, and for the fulfillment of every promise that God has made to God's people. The Israelites were quick to forget the way that Yahweh's had, the Yahweh had commanded them. Their worship of idols came from a lack of vision and a shortened memory as they forgot where they came from and who brought them out. Any idols that we have created as a community and as individuals comes from the same thing. But God is bigger than our salvation. Moses' reminder contextualizes God's, uh, God's mighty acts of salvation and liberation as for being for the sake of not just the chosen nation of Israel, but for all nations, even including their former oppressor. To hold on to memories is a difficult thing to do. That is the definition of testimony and trauma. And yet this thing that we call worship is a challenge to remember what needs to be remembered and to forget what needs to be forgotten. And this is what worship is. To participate in the holy act of remembering what God has already initiated. To be witnesses to what God continues to do and to keep hope alive for what God will eventually bring to fruition. And one of the most disturbing parts of our Exodus reading is actually what I consider the most liberating part of our Exodus reading. That the people's rejection of Yahweh and the covenant is not how the story ends, as Moses wrestles with Yahweh and prevails. As God's, mo uh, as God's memory is stirred by Moses, he says, who do you think that you are if you don't need your memory to be stirred? Is your memory crystal clear? Do you have no need to be reminded? The golden calf is created when worship is primarily concerned with the salvation of self. As the Israelites forget their commands, and as Yahweh is reminded of his covenant and relents of his wrath, forgetting that God's liberation is for all peoples across all nations is the quickest way for God's people to self-destruct. That is true in the ancient text and in the modern context. The thing which saved the Israelites from total destruction at the foot of the mountain is the same thing that will save us from total destruction here today to embark on a journey that requires intentional memory, acts of remembering which involve the entire being and the whole person. 
a memory which unites us mentally, emotionally, and volitionally to the God who watches over us, causing us not just to look backwards, but also to look forward, to see that our salvation is about us, but it's not about us, because liberation is a byproduct of a community that responds continually to God's invitation to abundant life with truth about God's story and with truth about our own story. And so odds are that if you've ever been in the wilderness, if you've ever felt the wilderness experience, you too are familiar with not knowing where God is, looking for God, where has God disappeared to? But let us not forget who God is. Let us uh, uh, not lose our apprehension of God by forgetting where we came from, who liberates us, and where we're headed. Just as God remembers and forgets the holy act of memory within our worship also includes forgetting. Remember your slavery in Egypt, but forget the culture that you adopted from there. Remember the mighty acts of Yahweh while forgetting the gods that you were taught to serve in captivity. Yahweh remembers the covenant and forgets the sins of his children. A period of 40 years awaits them as they are taught a new culture, a new way of living, and entirely a new way of worshiping. And their collective memory in itself is a liberating practice that we must remember our stories and we must tell them fully. So let us inhale that our stories are sacred and that we will not preserve the lies. And let us exhale that our memory is our compass as well and that we will participate in remembering the truth. And so James Cone said, the claim that whites had the right to control the black population through lynching and other extra-legal forms of mob violence was grounded in the religious belief that America is a white nation, called by God to bear witness to the superiority of white over black. And James Cone effectively labels racism and bigotry in the American context as not just a religious practice, but a Christian practice. And if this is the recent history of the church and this nation, any attempt to divorce ourselves from this and our community from this reality is the birth of a golden calf in and of itself. It leads to inauthentic worship, which will inevitably lead to our destruction. All of our worship must be rooted in a proper memory of our own story and of God's saving acts, that salvation is bigger than you and liberation is bigger than me. And thank God we gather to remember this week after week and thank God for remembering this even when we forget. The word of the Lord. 